Zion literally bent the entire backboard. And he was all sheepish about it. He's like, oh, my teammates told me I didn't locker him. I don't know if it was me. Uh, <laughs> Zion, bud, it was you. Yeah, I mean, you're like the only dude who looks like the Hulk out here is you. Um, What's up, guys? Welcome to Birdwatch, an Orleans Pelicans podcast powered by NOLA.com. I'm Christian Clark, the Pelicans beat writer for NOLA.com, here with Jeff Nowak. You got some sleep in your eye, man. Uh, you were in Baton Rouge last night? I'm tired. <laughs> yes, I was out in Baton Rouge watching the LSU Fighting Tigers face the Kentucky a lot better Wildcats. And uh, yeah, I got out of there at about 1 a.m. And, uh, you know, quick turnaround. It's about 9.30 Central Time right now. Well, you so. got to see some fun podium game stuff from Will Wade, at least. He's He he was mean. Mean? <laughs> Means a, mean stuff. I mean, he, he had some very tough love for his team. What struck me is the difference between college coaching and NBA coaching. And I think that there's a real big difference. Because what he said after the game was... Uh, his quote, let me read it. They asked him if he had any options to like fix some of the issues he was complaining about. Is there, what can I don't you really- have any options. If I had options, I'd be playing other guys. Gosh. <laughs> and it was, I, I just wondered to myself, like, what if a guy like Alvin Gentry said that? I don't think it would go over well. Yeah, I mean, that's just not something you do in the NBA. It's I think, I don't think you, you can do. do it in the NBA. Like, maybe one or two coaches could, like, say something like that and not get fired. But it's a, just a different culture. I mean, the players make infinitely more than the coaches it's a completely different dynamic anyway that's not what we're here to talk about yeah so Uh, i was in chicago at all-star weekend it was really fun i think i got like 15 hours of sleep the entire time (laughs) um i rested up monday and and i'm i'm ready to talk about it i had a blast this weekend i thought the product was great three-point contest was fantastic dunk contest was fantastic the game itself was fantastic for the first time in years (laughs) i even thought the rising stars game was pretty entertaining so we're going to go into all of that. Got plenty of Brandon Ingram stuff for you, too. I spent some time kind of following him around this weekend, talked to him a couple of times. You know, I think it's just really fun to see a guy go to their first All-Star weekend. It's a novel experience for them. Like, there's just joy and, and happiness that they they belong. Like, this is kind of validation that they do belong among the elite players. But one of my main takeaways is everything, everywhere you went, everything you did, kind of the shadow of Kobe Bryant hung over everything. You know, Adam Silver announced that they were renaming the All-Star Trophy, the Kobe, Kobe Bryant MVP Award. Uh, Kobe won it four times, which is tied for the most ever. They changed the scoring format with a nod to Kobe. They went with the scores at the end of the third quarter, and then the team in the lead had to get to 24. I think the league did a fantastic job remembering Kobe. I enjoyed Common's poem, I guess, about Kobe and Jennifer Hudson, the, the song that she performed. I thought it was a great tribute to him. And I don't know, this is kind of a weird place to start this one, but Mamba mentality makes more sense to me now than it ever did. And I guess I say that because Kobe was just so obsessed with doing something great. And I think, you know, he kind of understood that, like, if you achieve that greatness, then that's something you'll absolutely be remembered by. And I think part of it, too, was like, you know, why not why not give it every ounce that you have? while you're in the game and I don't know man I mean every player in the NBA looks up to Kobe Bryant I I think he's far and away the most admired player just because of you know how much he wanted it and 
I thought the change that they made to the All-Star game was a good tribute to him. I mean, it was the most competitive game in years, but every everywhere you went, it was it was kind of all about Kobe in this one. So the 24 is always the target score in that format, right? Or is it different in the basketball tournament? It's different, yeah. They they went specifically to 24 that just was, of Kobe. Okay, that's yeah. what I thought, but I wasn't sure. Because it's always around that number, but 24 does seem kind of odd, especially in an all-star game when typically you're scoring 50 points a quarter. So I have uh, plenty of bad takes. Uh, apparently my takes about Common were bad because as soon as I got home, my, my girlfriend roasted me. I tweeted out, I was like, <laughs> oh, I thought Common's like intro was fantastic. And then I was asking my girl where she wanted to go eat on Monday night. And I suggested some place, and she was like, this from a guy who thought Common killed it. So, I don't know. I guess not everybody loved Common. Uh, I was or is gonna... she just a Common hater? She might be a hater. <laughs> but I do have to toot my own horn in this. I was absolutely right about the Elam ending, making it a more competitive game. Um, I've paid pretty close attention to the basketball tournament for a while now. I was confident it would work, and I had the receipts to prove it. I tweeted out as soon as they made the change, and... I was right, you know. I can't always say that. I gotta, I gotta take a little victory lap here. It was fantastic. Giannis was getting into LeBron stuff on defense. I mean, guys were trying to take charges. That was that was great. <laughs> there were officials reviews. I mean, it, that's pretty unimaginable in the All Star game. I, I think this was a resounding success. And it makes you wonder, like, you know, in a larger format, would a guy like Damian Lillard have thirty or forty game winning shots in a season? Like that, that just is built for a guy. It's built for shot makers, and the NBA is about shot makers. And I think that's what you saw, especially in a format where you have, you know, two dozen of the best shot makers in the NBA. The Elam ending was is named for Nick Elam. He's a educational leadership professor at Ball State University. Okay, <laughs> big time NBA uh, <laughs> NBA implications at Ball State University. But yeah, like you said, it came in through the the basketball tournament is what helped popularize it for this. Kind of neat that they. I think people criticized it as being too complicated initially, but when you saw it in practice, it really wasn't that complicated. The first three quarters were probably a little more complicated in terms of like, oh, what what charity are they playing for, that sort of thing. But once you got into the flow of what was happening, I think it really it did work well, and I was I was surprised. I didn't I didn't expect it to come off as well as it did. Well, as someone who's capable of basic addition, I did not think it was too complicated. Right. Yeah, I, I just didn't think it was that hard. Add up all the scores after three quarters. The team in the lead, they had to get 24 points. Uh, it's pretty easy, I thought. You know, I already heard kind of, not the whispers, but like the takes that like, hmm, what if they introduce this into the regular game? Uh, you know, I think it's fair to say that one of the worst parts about an NBA basketball game is often like the last two minutes, the last three minutes, you know, especially when a team is like up 10 and it's it's basically over, but like, the other team's trying to lengthen the game, and they're doing all this fouling, and there's a bajillion timeouts. Um, it just makes for a much more exciting finish when you're you're playing to that target score, and and there is kind of a, a game where every single game, like you said. What would you think about that? Do you think it would work? I do, actually. The nice thing is it's very relatable because anyone who's played pickup basketball understands that kind of flow at the end of a game. If you can play good enough defense, you can make up any deficit. You know, obviously, if they need two points and you need 20, it's a big ask, but it's all about they have to make a shot. What it would eliminate, which is something that I've been vocal about eliminating, period, whether it's through a rule change or otherwise, is the concept of fouling when you're up three in the final 10 seconds. I get that it's within the rules and I get the idea, but when I think of the NBA and the rules around the NBA, 
they should be focused on a competitive balance and making sure the game is fair b making sure that the fans get their money's worth whether it's making sure that star players aren't resting for games that you spent a ton of money on tickets for or making sure that the end isn't marred by like you know this would have been fun to see like real defense and steph curry or damian lord having a chance to take a shot instead of just just a nonsense foul at half court that's really not the nba you watch an entire game of nba basketball and it ends with you know james harden wrapping up steph curry at midcourt and someone trying to miss a free throw intentionally like if rule changes can help make the game more true to what basketball is i am all for it i just oh it gets so frustrating it's awful it's awful and i think the least exciting way for a game to end with the elam ending is at the free throw line and that was still really exciting it happened in this game and it was like a pressure-packed moment for anthony davis that was one of the biggest free throws anthony davis has ever attempted in his career (laughs) I mean, you could feel, like, the pressure in the arena after he missed that first one. Like, there is there is just kind of that buzz, that anxiousness. Uh, I I would have loved to have been on the couch with a couple of New Orleans basketball fans watching that game to, to hear what they had to say at that time. I do wonder, though, in that format, it will really bad free throw shooters still get intentionally fouled. You need 15, they need 5, and the other team has, you know, pick a pick an NBA player, Ben Simmons on the floor. Would you not just start fouling Ben Simmons until he makes one? Like, you could have three, four possessions in a row, and if he's bad enough, or like Andre Iguodala in the playoffs, I think that's a situation that you could end up... You, you see teams try to take advantage of these roles in the past. They'll, they'll do it again. Yeah, uh, And I could see that happening. And then you end up with a situation where a team just goes down the floor five times in a row and Ben Simmons clanks six free throws and or whatever. And that 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 won't eliminate the obnoxious attempts to utilize fouls intentionally no I, I think you're right and that's a fair point um i mean it's totally you could totally see a scenario where you know a team's trailing the pelicans by 12 the pelicans need to score 15 points and they're fouling lonzo ball like every single time or, or something like that um i would also say one of the if they did do this one of the changes i would like to see like if a guy's in anthony davis's situation where he needs to make like one free throw to end the game i think he should only get one attempt like even if he gets attempted on a field goal, it adds some pressure, and it's just I just think it's too easy if you give him two free throw attempts and you need one point. There was one really bold rule change that someone put out there where it was just like you basically eliminate free throws and all fouls that are shooting fouls are just one free throw. And I actually think that there's merit to that in the sense that it speeds up the game, it stops the game from turning into a free throw shooting competition. But yeah, I mean, I have a feeling that that is a pipe dream at best. Okay, so let's go. Let's go back to Friday. Let's go back to the Rising Stars game. Pelicans had three players in that one: uh, Zion Williamson, Nicole O'Malley, shout out, who had a trip booked to the Bahamas but had to change his flight up a little bit, and then Nikhil Alexander Walker. Um, look, I'll be honest. I had, I had pretty low expectations for this game. Like, I, I enjoy just like guys pulling up from from 35 feet uh i mean it's it's a game built for for shot makers um it's it's a very low quality basketball being played but i still thought there were some fun moments in this one um chief among them took his shots yeah he got his shots yeah he got them up (laughs) but the coolest part of this game was zion literally bent the entire backboard or like he tilted the entire goal to the left Uh, it was like a two-handed power dunk and we, we asked him after the game. He was all sheepish about it. He's like, oh, my teammates told me I didn't locker him. I don't know if it was me. Uh, <laughs> it, 
Zion, it was you. <laughs> I'm sorry, bud, bud. Yeah. It was you. Yeah. I mean, you're like the only dude who looks like the Hulk out here is you. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I thought it was just a really cool Friday overall for Zion. Um, he got to meet President Obama. Obama stopped by this NBA Cares event. Not a lot of people knew it was going to happen. Like, I don't think Zion was expecting it. Like, Obama just kind of walked in and just started talking to everybody there. Trey Young was there too, Zion. And I watched the video of just like Obama walking through the room, and it absolutely looked like the key and peel skit. Like, he was dapping up everybody. He's like, you know, mixing in some zingers here and there. Like, he might be. He's one of the most charismatic people in like the world. It's unbelievable. I was literally getting ready to, to queue up the Key and Peele reference because it really did. It was just so funny. Barack Obama, more than any president in American history, just understands how to be cool. <laughs> like he just he's able to talk to people on their level, regardless of what it is. Like when he walked up to Zion, you could hear him in some of the recordings. And it was just like, dude, 32 points or 31 points, whatever he had. It was like, he actually watched that. Like, he believed that he watched that game and, like, came into that with just, like, sincere admiration for the work he put in there. And that wasn't even the TNT game. That was, like, the league pass game. Right. (laughs) It was just a, it was a game right before the All-Star break that he could have just, like, looked at the highlights of it. Maybe he did just look at the box score, but either way. Like, I thought that was cool. The fact that he didn't just come in and be like, ah, you're really good, and just dap him up. Like, he actually knew who he was talking to with the fact that he scored a career high, what, 12 hours earlier? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He was absolutely aware. Um, You know, I thought it was funny when he roasted J-Kid's three-point shooting. Uh, He just mixed that one in there, and, like, all J-Kid could do was just, like, laugh, even though he's like, man, I'm, like, in my 40s, and I'm an assistant coach with the Lakers, and you're still making fun of me? Like... I'm, you know, I'm not that much younger than you, but I thought it was really cool too. Like you could just see Zion, how giddy Zion was about that. Like he, he looked like a little kid, how happy he was that Obama, you know, clearly keeps up with his game. So I thought that was an awesome moment and a pretty fun Rising Stars game. Yeah. And uh, I do want to say Nicolo Melli, I don't know, I could probably look this up, but I'm too lazy. He must have set the record for age in a Rising Stars game. Oh, he right? didn't. I looked this up. Who's uh, the oldest? So, um, most recently, Para Antic, who played two seasons with the Hawks. I okay. think he was 31 when he played this game. There have been like four guys. Are you sure he was 31? Or what? Did has he just looked 31 since he was a teenager? Because <laughs> he seems like that type of guy. I remember him in the NBA, and he just was like... It, he was the closest thing the NBA has had to a bouncer. <laughs> like, if he was in hockey, he would be the guy who fights people to like give the team an edge oh yeah he anyway. absolutely looks like a bouncer at like a loto bar and he, he works like his right. shift is like midnight to 8 a.m or something but uh anyway yeah I, I looked this up before he so i believe kendrick nunn and uh Devontae graham were the second oldest guys in that game at 24 i want to say so he was five years older than anyone else on the court at any time he raised the average age of both rosters by a full year just by being included. <laughs> like, the average age otherwise was, like, 20 and a half years old. Yeah. I mean, he was definitely buying the beer after the game. Like, those guys were, you know, Venmo <laughs> well, and 20 bucks each. because then they he would be supplying underage kids with alcohol, and that would be illegal. <laughs> most of them were 19 and 20. I, think, I want to say seven seven players were under under 21. But just... just remarkable and they're all so many players in that game were just like 
foundational players. You weren't just throwing guys onto this roster like you see a lot of times. These were guys who are up and coming or like already stars in the NBA, like Trey Young and even a guy like Devontae Graham is like really having a nice year with, in the, with the Hornets. Kendrick Nunn came out of nowhere and he's having an incredible year with the Heat. Uh, so There's just, just so much talent in the NBA right now. Right. It's, and it's so much young talent. Yeah. Uh, whereas like in the past you've seen teams dominate with older players I think you're going to see teams dominate with a roster of like 25 and under players pretty soon I think and the Pelicans are as set up as anyone to be able to do that another cool thing about Rising Stars we got to see some John Morant Zion Aliyups, uh flashbacks to the South Carolina Hornets for one season uh, Zion was going into ninth grade John Morant was going into 10th grade they played on the same AAU team in South Carolina the South Carolina Hornets um Interestingly, both have said the best player in that team was a kid named Devante Schuler, who's a junior at Ole Miss now. You know, he's kind of a early bloomer. I think those guys were more late bloomers. But man, I would I would love to go back in the time machine and, and watch a South Carolina Hornets game. I'll tell you what, South Carolina produces some really talented NBA players. Like Kevin Garnett's from South Carolina, Ray Allen's from South Carolina, obviously Zion and Ja. Like it's a really good high school AAU circuit in that state. And it's weird because there's not a ton of high-level college basketball in that state. You have Clemson, you have South Carolina, but most people ship up the road to North Carolina and Duke. So it's it's interesting to see. Like I'm sure that if you went back in the annals of some of these teams, you'll see more, you know, Zion and Ja, Kevin Garnett, and whoever else he was on a team with at that point playing in the Beach Ball Classic in Myrtle Beach, like... There's a really good history of NBA players from South Carolina. You know who's from North Carolina? A lot of people. Uh, that's true. But uh, Brandon Ingram, a Kinston, North Carolina native. He was kind of the main story from a Pelicans perspective this weekend. Um, I got the chance to, to go to his media availability on Saturday, which, by the way, those those are crazy. Like the availability that they do with all of the All-Stars. It's, it's like Super Bowl style, so they each have their own podium and they're available for like 30 minutes. There's a lot of international media there, so they get a lot of weird questions. They get a lot of like, hey, Brandon Ingram, can you shout out your fans in the Philippines? Stuff like that, which, you know, that, that's cool. You know, I think that's this is their chance to do that kind of stuff. You know, I, I love watching Ingram this week, and I know he didn't play that much in the game. Um, I think a lot of that was precautionary because of the right ankle. He expects to be fine on Friday. But I think this was, you know, this weekend for Brandon Ingram was kind of, you know, the realization of like hours and hours and like weeks and weeks and like years that he's put in, you know, largely alongside his dad of, of trying to become, you know, a very good professional basketball player. You know, I think Ingram has had this goal that he wanted to be a hooper since he was, you know, late middle school, early high school. His dad managed a gym in Kinston, North Carolina. And this is what I wrote my story about. But like Ingram was, was in the gym with his dad, like every night and weekend that he could he could possibly be at. He skipped his senior prom to go shoot baskets at the gym with his dad. This guy is a hoops head through and through. I think, you know, this breakout year is largely a product of just the work that he's put in. Even during the season, you know, Ingram is often coming back to the gym at night to, to shoot with Fred Vincent, the Pelican shooting guru, or do ball handling stuff. This guy has really worked for it. And, you know, he's kind of turned himself into one of the, the NBA's 25 30 best players by just working his butt off basically and i i thought that was a really cool thing you could just see like the joy in his dad's face the whole weekend 
Yeah, so Ingram Ingram played eight eight and a half minutes. He was the only player on either roster that played fewer than ten minutes. Uh, I, I saw some criticism like oh, I can't believe they didn't play him. It was like I think it would be weird if they went out there and gave him 15, 20 minutes after, you know, he missed three games and is playing in a game that doesn't matter. So it, I think it was encouraging to see him out there at all, because if the ankle injury was something significant, you would not have seen him in that game, whether he was 75%, 80%. You're more likely to play in a game where you're not playing hard defense. And that's why he didn't play in the fourth quarter, I'd imagine. But I think that it was neat to see him out there even if he didn't get a ton of minutes, I was worried that he was going to be in the same boat as like Demarcus Cousins, where he got to the, he got to the game and just couldn't play. Uh, that wasn't the case, so it was nice to see uh, a Pelicans player get in there. He is the first New Orleans Pelicans, and I say that with emphasis for a reason. He's the first New Orleans Pelicans basketball player to play in the All Star game, other than Anthony Davis. Demarcus Cousins made it. Obviously, he had the Achilles injury. He didn't play before that. 2011 with Chris Paul, and that was the final year of the Hornets. Wow. Hey, man, who knows? Depending on how well the Pelicans do starting next year, they uh, they might have two in this game. It's it's really hard to get two in this game, though. Yeah, I mean, the Pelicans have done it. That's the thing. Like, they, they, had, they did it with DeMarcus Cousins and Anthony Davis. Very few teams are able to do that. I think the only team with two this year was the Lakers with Anthony Davis and LeBron. You can correct me on that if I'm wrong. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Embiid and Simmons made it, correct? Yeah. So there were, there were two teams with two players in it. If you project what Zion has done over the last 10 games, over, you know, even a moderately healthy first half, is he an all-star? Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. Agree. I mean, if, if, like, if Zion had done what he's done in these 10 games, like, over the course of, you know, the first half of the season, I think he's, like, a strong candidate for all NBA. Like, that's just the okay. type of talent he is. I, I don't think that's crazy. Um, my favorite random moment from this weekend well, one of them was splitting a lift to the arena on Friday, and it was cold as hell in Chicago. I split this lift with this uh, member of the Serbian media who was there for Nikola Jokic, and he looks at me and he just goes, "This is like Russia." So that was number one. Uh, you know, I'm I'm a Southern kid. It it wasn't the best. And my my number two favorite random moment was like Ingram just got all asked all sorts of random questions. One of them was if you were like commissioner for a day, what change would you make? And he said he would raise the fine on flopping. I thought that was an extremely Brandon Ingram answer. <laughs> I love it. Well, yeah, because if if Brandon Ingram has spent his entire NBA career being a wiry, strong guy, and I think if he's not if he's driving into someone and they're flying ten feet backward. I don't think I think there's some acting going on. I think that Brandon Ingram hates fakeness, like yeah. physically and emotionally. He just he just is not here for fakeness. <laughs> He's here to ball. He's here to ball. <laughs> All right, we're gonna take a break. We'll be right back. That's called a winning streak. It has happened before. Back here on Birdwatch, a Pelicans podcast powered by NOLA.com. Jeff, it's stretch run time, baby. Um, Pelicans have 27 games remaining in their season. Uh, I just want to kind of take stock of the situation before we get in the craziness that I think this this race for the Western Conference's final playoff spot is going to be. Um, Pelicans are five and a half games back of the eight-seeded Memphis Grizzlies with 27 to go. Uh, the Pelicans have the easiest schedule in the NBA in, in terms of opponents' winning percentage. Memphis has the most difficult. Um, I, I'm looking at this as kind of a four-team race. 
Memphis, Portland, San Antonio, and New Orleans. I think those are the four they're going to be jockeying for this spot. Uh, I was doing a little bit of research last night. In the past decade, 41 wins is the least amount of wins it's ta- it's taken to make the playoffs in the West. Um, 2016-17 was one of those years. The Trailblazers actually snuck in with 41 wins. The Nuggets finished 40-42, just missed. That was my first season covering the Nuggets, by the way. Um, so I'm going to assume that it's going to take 41. The The Grizzlies are two games above 500 right now with a really hard schedule. So if it's going to take 41, the Pelicans are going to need to go 18-9 and during this stretch. Do you think they can pull it off? I think they can. And, I mean, that's not that far beyond what they've done the last since, you know, early January or whatever the – 13-game losing streak ended. I mean, I think they're about seven games over 500 in that stretch. So you're talking about 18 and 9. That's nine games over 500. And like you said, they have the easiest schedule in the NBA. I pointed out last week, this is a team that has 12 of its final 15 games against opponents who are below 500. Two of those games are against the Grizzlies, who the Pelicans have shown to this point that, you know, they match up well against, you know, they beat them pretty handily in Memphis and they beat them. They, they beat a shorthanded Memphis squad. They beat them down in new Orleans. Um, but there's no reason to think they don't take at least one more of those games. And by doing that, they'll earn the head, head tiebreaker, which could be vital because you're going to talk up, you're talking about a scenario that the Pelicans make it, it's going to come down to, one game here or there, I think, you know, and if they own that tiebreaker, it's, it's basically like winning one of those final two games is like winning two games because yeah. a tie will go to the runner, <laughs> will go to the Pelicans. But I think the next six games are probably what's going to determine whether they give themselves a chance or not. The Pelicans have a tough stretch, but a, but a stretch where they can feasibly go four and two or five and one if they win one of those games against the Lakers and the Grizzlies have a really tough stretch they also play the Lakers twice they play the Clippers they play the Rockets and they have two sets of back-to-backs in their next six games the Pelicans play those six games over I want to say 12 days the Grizzlies play those six games over nine days so I think you're going to see a lot of movement one way or the other and that's going to probably be the biggest indicator of whether it's going to be realistic to hope for down the stretch. So two things here. Uh, Number one, am I crazy in saying that I think Friday in Portland is pretty close to a must win? Because I don't think the Trailblazers are going to have Damian Lillard. I don't think we know for sure, but he had a groin injury right before the All-Star break, did not play in the All-Star game. I would say the odds are that he probably doesn't play. I think you kind of got to get it done against the Trailblazers if they don't have Damian Lillard, even though it is on the road, especially with you know, a game against the Lakers looming later on that road trip. Right. I think you set yourself up one of two ways. If you win that game against the Blazers, you set yourself up where you don't have to beat the Lakers to keep yourself in the race. You can lose both games to the Lakers. You know, obviously they'd hope to win one or two of those, but one or both. But even if you did lose those games, if you beat the Blazers, you have, you know, two more, three more winnable games outside the Lakers in that six-game stretch, and you're still in decent shape. If you lose that game to the Blazers, you basically have to have to beat the Lakers at least once, or three and three over the next six games is not is not going to get it done. 
Yeah, yeah. And the other thing I'm really curious about, and I'll ask this at the next availability, I don't know what the Pelicans' answer on this is going to be. Is Zion Williamson going to play in the second night of back-to-backs? Because they have a handful of back-to-backs here down the stretch. And, I, I mean, I think to make the playoffs, uh, you, you almost need to, to have him in there in the lineup. I mean, obviously, look, if you if the, the Pelicans feel that, like, this is just too much burden on, on his body physically after he missed three months with the right knee injury, yes, you have to think long-term. I totally get it. But, you know, I think to make the playoffs, you probably need him in there. I mean, he's just that important of a piece. Okay, so the, the Pelicans' next back-to-back... They haven't had one in a while. Their next back-to-back is March 3rd and March 4th. They play Minnesota at home, and they play Dallas on the road. The question, you know, to me the question isn't, does he play the back both, both ends of back-to-backs? The question is, you know, do you strategically say, okay, can't we can probably beat Minnesota without him, right? Like, if, if you're the Pelicans, would you rather have him at Dallas or would you rather have him at home versus Minnesota? I mean, so I think he probably doesn't. He probably doesn't play both ends of that back-to-back, but I think if the Pelicans are strategic about this, they say, okay, we're going to rest you after a tough game against Los Angeles on March 1st. We're going to rest Zion on a winnable game against Minnesota, who they probably you know can beat, assuming the rest of the lineup is healthy. And then you just go all in at Dallas. The next set of back-to-backs is March 21st and March 22nd. Now, this is an interesting one because it's Memphis on March 21st, you're at Memphis. The next day, you have Sacramento at home. I can't. I don't think he plays that game because <laughs> this is probably going to make or break their season. Because March 24th, two days later, you welcome the Grizzlies back to town in what could be a must-win game. Uh, so my gut feeling is there. He either doesn't play against Sacramento or he plays very limited minutes, and you just gear up for two gauntlet-type games against the Grizzlies. That might very well determine that that eight seed. I would just love to see the race come down to Memphis and New Orleans, kind of, you know, two Southern young teams on the rise for that last playoff spot. I just think that would be really fun. One of the most fun regular season games I've ever watched was uh, when the Nuggets and Timberwolves played in that, like, game 82 do-or-die game, and the winner of it went on to the playoffs. It went into overtime. It was really ugly, but really Jimmy fun. Jimmy Butler? Yeah, Jimmy Butler. That was the year he was in Minnesota. One of the best regular season games I've, I've ever watched. I would love if it comes down to the last night of the season. That would be so much fun. They're in San Antonio in the last night of the season, so I wouldn't rule it out. I, I've said all along, I think that you know the, the Pelicans have just a little too much ground to make up. Um, you know, I, I've said I think they're going to finish ninth. They think they're going to finish you know one or two games out of the playoff spot. But, man, when I was counting just like my gut instinct on the rest of the schedule – I think I had him at like 18 wins. Uh, they said 17. Seven, 18 would be a 500. Okay. Yeah, I had him like you know 17, 18 wins. I, I think it's going to yeah. be right there is my point. I think it's going to come down to you know the final stretch. So I think this, is, this has a chance to be really interesting and really fun. And you know what? What more could you ask from this year? You know, considering the way things started. Right, exactly. And, you know, the idea that you have a 13-game losing streak in a season and you still have hope at all. You know, I, I tweeted out the fact that, you know, the next six games are a big deal. And I someone someone responded, you know, trying to tell me that it's not realistic. It's just you're trying to give Pelicans fans, like, hope to, like, pay attention. And you're, it's really not something that could actually happen. And his reasoning came, ended up actually proving my point, which was you look at if the Pelicans 
beat every team that they have a better record than, which doesn't include the Spurs currently. So this is actually has three losses to the Spurs baked in. If they beat every team they have a better record than, plus the Grizzlies twice, they end up 38 and 44. If the Grizzlies lose to every team they have a worse record than, and the Pelicans twice, they end up, they go 10 and 18. They're 38 and 44. So like just that basic analysis there, it shows you like there's there's a pretty realistic path. You know, it just requires the Grizzlies to help out. <laughs> if the Grizzlies continue the pace they're on, then there's then yes, it's an impossible feat. The Pelicans are not getting to two or three games over 500. They're not going to go 21 and six over the final 27 games. It's just not going to happen. This is not that type of team. But uh, if you <laughs> if you want to look at some uh, projections by people much smarter than myself, we can go to the kind people of 538 who I was actually stunned. I just looked this up, you know, before we came came on to this uh, this show, this episode today. They are giving the Pelicans a 57% chance to make the playoffs. I mean, that's way too high. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah. And the Grizzlies, what would you, you I think you probably remember what I, when we went over this earlier, like what would you peg the Grizzlies at if you had to give them a chance? Oh, me, Christian Clark, odds maker? Oh, yes. Man. Uh, 45%? I think that's what any reasonable person would say but according to 538 they have an 11 percent chance to make the playoffs yeah they have them projected to finish 37 and 45 yeah i mean that's because like the way 538 does that particular metric it's like they're evaluating you know how i guess talented or whatever the the player individual players on the roster are right like it's about it it's a lot about individual talent and i think you know it's safe to say like the Pelicans have more talent on their roster than the Grizzlies. Um, you know, yeah. you talk about how that, that comes together and how many games they've lost to injuries, but I think that's why it is the way it is. Yeah, it's um, projecting, just to close that loop, it's projecting the Grizzlies to go 9-19 and 19 over their final 28 games. It's projecting the Pelicans to go 17. Like like you said, you, you pegged them at 17 wins. Uh, it's projecting the Pelicans to go 17 and 10 over their final 27. So, which I think that's realistic. I just think it's hard to believe. Like, I understand the schedule gets harder, but I've watched the Grizzlies play teams like the Nuggets, teams like the Rockets, teams like the Clippers, and, you know, put the screws to them. So it, I get that their schedule gets more difficult, and teams like the Lakers, teams like the Bucks will be tough for them. But I think they're going to be a tough out, even if even if their schedule was getting getting more difficult. So, uh, gun to your head, who do you think gets the last playoff spot in the West? Last week, I went gung-ho on the Pelicans. I don't see anything, you know, that loss of the Thunder hurt them. I think they really could have benefited from that game. But I'm still, I still think they get there. I'm going to stick, I'm not going to try to tell the smart folks over at 538 they're wrong. Uh, So I'm going to stick with the Pelicans. I think winning that tiebreaker is important. They don't need to be in both games against the Grizzlies, but they need to win one. If they can win the third game and set up that fourth game as kind of a all-in type game on March 24th. I think they can get it done. Okay. I'm I'm taking Portland. One of my few rules in life, don't bet against Damian Lillard, especially in the regular season. I know he's got the grunt thing right now, but I'm still taking Portland. Um, last part of the show, uh, I wanted to talk about Zion a little bit. I want to talk about a story I, I did um, this week. I got to talk to um, 
Marcus Elliott, who's the founder of P3, a sports science institute in, in California. Um, nearly 60% of NBA players who've worked out at on a roster this year have worked out at P3, so they have a good amount of data. And you know what the story focused on was um, Zion Williamson's second jump. You know, just watching these 10 games, that was kind of something that just stuck out to me. One of the most incredible parts of his game, like, obviously we all know about the first jump. Like, when he was at Duke, he measured 45 inches. It was a school record. It was kind of funny. Uh, they have what's called a Vertec machine, and it's basically just like, it's got a large arm, and then it's got these little flaps, and you jump up and touch the flaps, and that tells you how high you've jumped. Well, Zion Williamson maxed out the machine. They literally had to, like, bring weights out of the weight room and stack it under the machine to, like, you know, make it taller, and they had to do that. So, so Zion, you know, wasn't like maxing it out. So, yes, we know about the first jump. At a certain point, can't you just say like really high, really high, like, <laughs> unmeasurable? Anyway, sorry. No, you're good. You're good. Um, but you know, I think the interesting part of this conversation with Marcus Elliott, the the founder of P3, out of any athlete P3 has ever tested, um. Zion generated the most force on what's called the drop jump test, which is basically designed to measure a second jump. And I think where you see that translate in games is he is unbelievable at rebounding his own misses. Like he'll go up, shoot a layup, miss, and get it back. He's rebounded 17 of the 61 shots he's missed. That's more than a quarter. Yeah, and and the second jump is a factor there, right? But I also think a lot of the time it's – just motor and the fact that you can't box him out right so when you're talking about second jump it's usually it's the offensive rebounds like coming off the backboard coming off the rim where he can put it back but if you you watch him play there's a lot of times he chases down these balls it's it's not always him getting up in the air sometimes the ball's coming off and he's tracking it and you just can't put a body on him to keep him off of it and that's that's also a factor there like he just has one of the best motors that you'll ever see even out of shape even you know gassed a lot of the time but on offense on especially on the offensive glass he gives an incredible amount of effort on a on just a more consistent basis than you're just used to seeing from an NBA player I could not agree more I went back and watched um all of his offensive rebounds and one of the things that stuck out to me is as soon as the shot goes up almost every single time he's he's like positioning himself to to get the rebound like Sometimes you see guys who, even on the offensive end, they'll try to, like, block out. Like, they'll put their rear end in, into somebody and start angling for position when the shot goes up. Zion is doing that a lot. Um, you know, I think that's one of the most amazing things about him is that he has all his God-given talent, and he's out there just playing his butt off every single time. Um, you know, obviously, the fitness is is still, I don't think, where the Pelicans would like it. I think it's getting there. Um, but yeah, man, the, the motor is just ridiculous and, and how much this guy wants to win. It's, you know, everything you want from, you know, your franchise player, your number one overall pick, but I've, I've enjoyed that, that part of his game a lot. Uh, he's third in the NBA in points off putbacks, averaging 3.8 per game ahead of like Gobert, DeAndre Ayton, Carl Anthony Towns. Um, I mean, he's just a beast, man. I mean, half his rebounds are offensive rebounds. He's averaging about seven rebounds a game. Seven and a half rebounds. He, three and a half of those are offensive rebounds. And I think the the as his fitness comes back, you'll see the defensive rebound improve. He's basically averaging seven rebounds a game off of just pure effort. And every every time you see him play, he seems like he's getting his legs under him a little bit more, a little bit more. But there's still moments that you look at him 
and he's gassed. He's a 285-pound guy running up and down the floor. He posts up in transition <laughs> and gets matched up. I think it was Dennis Schroeder in the Thunder game, who I think the description that I thought was funny was it was like watching Dennis Schroeder try to uh, defend a rhinoceros getting to the rim. And it was so true. And it's just like <laughs> the stuff that he does is just unreplicable by so many other people. One of my other takeaways from researching this piece, Zion Williamson and Derek Favors have been freaking dynamite together. You know, I think some people you know, question that fit going in. Oh, do you need to have uh, a three-point shooting big man next to Zion out when he's on the floor? The Pelicans' best two-man combination who's played at least 100 minutes together, it's Zion Williamson and Derek Favors on the season. They're outscoring opponents by 16 points per 100 possessions with them on the floor. The Pelicans are grabbing 40% of all available offensive rebounds when those two play together. Uh, four out of 10, that's that's pretty bananas. Like The Nuggets lead the league in offensive rebounding percentage at about 30%, so they're a full 10 percentage points better in terms of grabbing offensive rebounds than the NBA's best team when Zion and Favors play together. You know, I think the spacing, sure, it can be clunky at times, but I think overall, if you're just like taking, you know, a 10,000 foot view of this thing, they've been really good. And honestly, I think, you know, bringing back favors might be kind of important this offseason. I don't think it's just safe to assume that like you'll bring back someone who will be as good next to Zion as Fave. That's, that's a good point. And you also have to keep in mind there's going to inevitably a point where you will, will want to see Zion expand his game from the paint so that there's like some gravity going to him you know and at that point a more rim rocking center will make more sense with the spacing you know right now they're just making it work because he's a rookie and having played in what nine games and favors is a veteran who understands how to how to do his job but i think that combination will just will only improve it won't get it won't get worse in terms of spacing than it is now He's Zion's getting ninety percent of his points in the paint. I think like it's it, it's it's really interesting to see to to see how this develops over this season. And if they bring him back, I'd be fascinated to see how Zion, you know, built on his current game and how he kind of works with favors. Twenty-seven games ago, uh, I think this is going to be really fun, Jeff. I've got to go. Thank you for getting up early this morning um, after being in Baton Rouge last night. We're on Apple, we're on Spotify, mash the subscribe button, leave, leave us a review, and we're really excited to talk to you guys these next couple weeks. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Thanks. Peace.